William Merritt, thank you for joining us. How are you, sir? Good evening. Good evening. And where, where are you joining us from today? Uh, I'm in Berkhamsted in um, England, Hertfordshire. Oh, oh, great. Okay. And uh, maybe you can just explain a little bit about who you are and what you do. What would you say describes uh, your work? Yes, uh, I'm a specialist investigator. I've been in the UK since 2000. Uh, originally, I was um, brought up in New Zealand, although I was born in England. Uh, and uh, I was a member of the New Zealand police for a few years and until I branched off uh, as an investigator. And I concentrated primarily on insurance claims investigations. Uh, and then I came over in 2000, that was 23 years ago, to the UK, continued with that line of work until uh, around about 2014, 2015, when the um, Operation U-Tree uh, investigations were in full swing. Uh, and uh, I went back to being uh, an, a specialist investigator or maybe a private detective, depending on how you, uh, uh, how people refer to me. Think, and I became uh, involved with Rolf Harris that way. Right. It's not every day I get to speak to someone who is in the police in New Zealand. So, I mean, uh, what what is the kind of crime scope like it in new zealand then because i think from from outsiders looking towards new zealand it's got this idea of this very quaint picturesque almost peaceful uh place which i, I imagine many people would think has very low crime rates what were the kind of things that would come up on on your day-to-day -day tasks as a copper in new zealand uh far from it um there may only be a small population uh but i think you can see by of recent times there's been some very bad publicity with uh, murders and um, uh, uh, hitchhikers and people visiting the, the country. Um, uh, very, very busy. Uh, I know when I was a young trainee detective constable, the first five months, I had 89 arrests and only four or five of them were for what you'd call street offences. Um, the rest were all serious crime. Uh, and uh, I was involved at a, at a very early stage in homicides, rapes, armed robberies. Make no mistake about it, where I was in Auckland, there was a lot of crime. <laughs> okay. I mean, how, how long was you in the police force again in, in New Zealand? Uh, I only spent five years in the police in New right. Zealand. Okay. I became a detective. Uh, and then um, I came uh, to the UK for um, about 12 months. I had to go back to New Zealand to give evidence in a homicide trial. Uh, and it was then that I had the uh, decision to make whether I rejoined the police, which I had the opportunity, or whether I um, set up as a, a private investigator. And I chose the latter, uh, mainly because back in those days, things changed. Back in those days, this is the early 70s, uh, you had to go back into uniform. And uh, after being a detective, I wasn't going back to uniform. <laughs> and I suppose, I mean, is that kind of like beat cop work when you have to wear a uniform? Is that the thing you're kind of pushing back against? Well, uniform, no, uh, incident cars, inquiry cars, um, yeah, the, the, but in uniform, uh, you know, if you call the police uh, now in the UK. What people don't realise is there's very little difference between UK police and New Zealand police. They do the same work and a lot of UK police go to New Zealand um, the only thing they find out uh, and uh, often is that some of the people they have to deal with are a lot bigger and a lot stronger than they have to deal with on the streets over here. <laughs> That's interesting. <laughs> You've got the Pacific Islanders and, and some of those are big boys. <laughs> right. Most of them are well behaved, thank goodness, otherwise we'd really be in trouble. <laughs> That's a relief. So, I mean, yeah. the, the private investigator angle of this really fascinates me because uh, I, I have no idea what that is. We all have some kind of movie idea of what the private sleuth is and then what they get up to. But, I mean, maybe you can explain a little bit about what kind of things you focus on, what kind of things you take on in that role. And, and where's that line between what you're able to do as a private investigator that uh, where it may cross over into official police work? I imagine that can get quite blurry, perhaps. I don't find it that way at all. Okay. Um, the way uh, way I look at it is, the police they do their um, their job as detectives. They're supposed to be impartial. They're supposed to look at both sides. Unfortunately, 
in many cases they don't and we found out with operation yew tree that they didn't so what was required um, with a lot of the people that i worked for it wasn't just rolf harris uh, was a detective that actually did the work that the police should have. And a lot of that is um, background checks, knocking on doors, interviewing people, and finding witnesses that the police either overlooked or didn't want to find. Uh, and then presenting, um, hopefully, an unbiased case to the court. And that's what we did. And we had very good success. Did you know, I mean, when did when did Rolf Harris, the celebrity, the personality, when did he come on onto your radar? Because I mean, I, I obviously you know he's he was a he's Australian, I believe he's Australian, and and he was uh, he was massively successful in the UK. I think that's where he, he found most of his fame. So he's kind of straddles a couple of generations in my country. I'm 39 and I know him from kind of being a child entertainer. My parents know him for some of his music few people in between knowing from some of his serious kind of animal hospital work a bit later down the line so he kind of straddles a few generations in the uk how, how did you come to learn of who rolf harris was well rolf harris out of all the celebrities that were um, charged during the operation U tree and there were a number of them rolf harris was the only one i knew and i knew him as a young boy in new zealand um and strangely enough right up until I, I, I worked um, on his case, I always thought that he was based in Australia. I didn't realise he, ca he came to England in 1953. Yeah. Uh, and as a young New Zealander, I used to watch Rolf Harris' show and think, oh, he's in Australia. Um, how I, it's in my book. Uh, in my book, I actually say that I'd actually got involved with Dave Lee Travis, TLT, who was a uh, well-known radio um, one uh, DJ over here, and he was um, charged with um, historical sexual offences. Uh, and I got involved with him in about 2014, during which time Rolf Harris was also charged and was um, going before the courts. When I finished Dave, uh, DLT, Rolf Harris by that time had been convicted. He'd been in jail for about a year. Uh, and out of the blue, I got a phone call, and it was an Australian female accent. And she said, oh, hello, I'm Jenny Harris. And I knew straight away. I'd never heard of Jenny Harris, but I knew straight away who it had to be. And she said, well, we'd heard about you on the day, on the great job you did with DLT. Um, I, I don't know how much you know about the Rolf Harris case. I knew nothing. And because um, I've been so busy. Uh, we'd like you to have a chat to you and um, see if you can do anything for us because we uh, feel that um, uh, we want to appeal and we're particularly concerned about the 54-year-old woman who said she was seven going on eight when she um, alleged Rolf um, sexually assaulted her. So I did. So I had a meeting with them. They came over to London. I had a meeting. I recommended Stephen Villo, who was a barrister, uh, now a King's Counsel. He was a Queen's Counsel at the time because he'd worked on the DLT case. And we teamed up again and um, away we went. Okay. So, I mean, what... Uh, I mean, Rolf House is obviously... He's not he's, he's not alive anymore. He was in poor, very poor health towards the end of his, his life. Neck cancer, I, I believe. I mean, what, did you have many meetings with him as an individual in person? Well... No, um, he did for a while ring me up occasionally on a Saturday. It was always on a Saturday night. And uh, it was some um, number, uh, an uh, unknown number. And the first thing I hear was, um, good day, my boy. And I knew who it was. So that, but other than that, I went and visited him in prison once. And um, in the third trial and the appeal, uh, I had a little bit more to do with him. But when I got involved, he was in prison. So I really had nothing to do with him. I was dealing with the, all the evidence and the... Uh, uh, because what happened, we, we, we looked at the appeal and we'd finished um, the... Uh, got the appeal almost completed for the seven, eight-year-old. Uh, and then they charged him with another seven offences. Plus there was a, uh, a civil case. So there was eight and... Uh, and all told. So we were then diverted to look into those. And I looked into all those while Rolf was still in prison. So 
I had virtually nothing to do with them. Okay, I mean, what what happens in your mind when you get this call? Because it's it's a famous person; you're aware of who he is. But the subject matter and the things he is being accused of are incredibly serious, incredibly dark. It's it, the crimes that you know instantly invoke a, a really like visceral dislike from the general public. Um, it's you know one of some of the worst crimes you can think of, really, when it involves minors and it's of a sexual nature. Uh, what was there any part of you in your head that thought, you know, what it, I, it, I'd be best probably just to keep well away from this? Why did you decide to take this on and, and want to look into it further? Well, I do this with I've had about thirty cases, uh, appeals, I said school teachers, um, a number of school teachers, uh, scout masters, even an ex policeman, uh, and. I can say now that um, all of the school teachers, scout masters, they, they were all found not guilty. Same as with Rolf Harris, the, the, the cases I looked at for him. So what I actually tell them all at the start was, look, you're employing a professional investigator. My job is to find out the truth. Nothing more. I'm not here to defend you. I will find out the truth. If by finding out the truth, I find that you're guilty, then you've got to accept that and i've probably had three only three where that has been the case the rest and i've not taken it any further the rest of them um i approach it i have a look at it now getting back to rolf harris it only took me about 20 minutes to read through the so-called evidence and i knew straight away this is this is this has not been a fair investigation uh, and on my team, I had a uh, retired, unfortunately, he's since passed away, retired detective superintendent who was um, who ran the um, intelligence section of the Hampshire Police. And uh, I said to Doug, look, have a read of this. And Doug came back. He says, how did they ever get a conviction against him? You know, so it wasn't just me. So we looked at that and I thought, no, this isn't right. So let's investigate it. And, and that's what happened. That's how I started. Um, but some of them, <laughs> trust me, some of them, I looked at them and I thought, oh, no, am I going to really get it in the neck over this one? You know, we had one, a blind paraplegic woman. Um, she had an honorary doctorate, an MBE. She had been on This Is Your Life. And I thought, I started investigating her and the press will slaughter me. Hmm. Well, it turned out quite the opposite. But you have to just... Take that off. You know, I've just, I watched this um, program, um, Hiding in Plain Sight, and it was quite dramatic, the music and the people. And the people that were on it, I know them. They were the ones that told lies in court, and they're still telling the lies. What I, you ha I have to do is I've got to ignore all this. You've got to say, look, you're not there to judge one or the other. You're not, well, some people seem to think they bring me up uh, the press do bring me up for information on Rolf Harris. I say, look, I'm not a friend of Rolf Harris's, the family, or anything like that. I said, I did a job. Uh, I said, I know a lot about Rolf Harris, probably more about the case than anyone else, but I did a job. So you've got to look at it and say, what? Well, go through it and have a good look at the evidence, then make up your mind. Okay, so th there's a, a lot to go on there for sure. So, um, I mean, obviously, uh, uh, Ralph Harris is a public figure. He's very famous. These allegations start going public. And I think it's, you know, it's fair to say that that can attract more interest from people who are less than honest and maybe opportunist and, and may want to capitalise on, on on the attention and, and potential financial reward for sure. That, that undoubtedly does happen in my mind. A lot of people think it's taboo to talk about but I, I accept that happens but it could it not be a case here of obviously there are many legitimate cases where he's committed crimes of a sexual nature and a, a handful of people have tried to capitalize on that and then by somehow proving that they're liars uh doesn't necessarily invalidate the genuine claims could it be a mix of both things going on here this is why you have to be very careful with the rolf harris case um uh, all the seven that we looked at well eight plus the, um, uh, the one that we investigated on appeal, uh, there's no doubt about that. Um, everyone but one had money involved, and we proved that. We found the, um, 
uh, the reason behind it. Uh, some of the reasons behind it were sad, like the, as I said, the paraplegic woman. Um, it was sad that she needed money. Uh, but we were actually able to prove that they had told lies and it was for financial gain. There was the other, the odd one that um, did it for, uh, they maybe, there was one in particular that uh, she was described by her um, cousin as a, uh, a bit of a, narciss a narcissist. And, and, and she was, and but that's a different type of person and they do it for another reason. Most of them saw the opportunity and they capitalized it, on it. Uh, and they didn't think, particularly after the first trial, they did not think for one moment that someone like me would be, uh, and my small team would come along and do the investigation <coughs> that the police should have done. Can you um, perhaps give an example of where you've, you've managed to, you, you know, you believe you've caught somebody out in a line. How did you manage to do that? What are the specifics, just to give people an example of where something fell apart? Well, yeah, quite a few, actually, but I'll try and keep it as brief as possible. Um, Lynn Burrick, or Berwick, um, I always get told off by my researcher for saying Burrick. It's Berwick. Lynn Berwick, who's the blind paraplegic woman, um, she made an allegation that she was in, running a radio sta a station, a small radio station uh, in Moorfields um, Eye Hospital, and Rolf Harris was a guest. She said he came in. From the moment he came in, he immediately was all over her. And he said, she said he was grabbing her back. Then he put his hands through, grabbed her, her nipples and pinched them. And then he put his hands through, uh, uh, through uh, uh, under a skirt. And she says, I was like rigid balls. And she said, I had to suffer all this, these indignities. Uh, and honestly, you know, it, it was terrible. It was shocking. And I read this. But then when I had a closer look, I found that the same woman had, in 2004, um, been involved in an interview when she talked about the visit by Rolf Harris to the Moorfield. And she said it was one of the best experiences I've ever had. It was so nice. Rolf came along. He played the didgeridoo. He had um, an Aboriginal man that he'd recorded on the telephone, and we sang it. We got the music right. It was amazing. And then in 2012, she wrote a book called God's Little Pattern, I think it is. Um, I've got it here. God's Rich Pattern. And in that, she said, once again, the, the interview with Rolf Harris was the best. He'd signed autographs. He was absolutely fantastic. Now, this totally contradicted what she was now saying. So we're talking about 2004, 2012. Now we've got 2015 after he was convicted. And she's now making these allegations, obviously. Now, this is where, okay, we looked at this. I looked at this and thought, this is strange. The studio she was in was no bigger than the size of a, a single bedroom, very small room. It had in it a table, two chairs, and a, a, a small desk with some sound recorders equipment. There was a guy called Hugh who was a sound recorders, and he was in that room. Hmm. In fact, he was the one that, help Rolf Harrison with his didgeridoo and his um, wobble board. And um, when she was asked about this in court, uh, she says, oh, yes, um, there was another person in there, Hugh, but he was very overweight and he'd be dead now. Well, the, the defence barrister said, well, actually, he's not. He's going to be the next, next witness on. And with that, she totally lost it. You know, she was virtually pleading to the jury, you know, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, as God is my witness, I'm telling you the truth. Well, Hugh came on, and Hugh said what a lovely time it was. It was brilliant. There's nothing happening. He hadn't seen it for years. And then to add to it, we also found the original recording, and we played that back. And it was just like she'd said in her book, she'd said earlier on, and Hugh. So why did she do it? She needed money. She'd sued an airline for a, for a whole lot of money before, and she got £160,000 compensation. There'd been other allegations made uh, about care workers and money. The sad part about it, and this is where I'm a little bit soft, I, you know, and I was talking to some of my people, and I just said, look, the sad thing about it is she's forced because she needs the money for her care. But, of course, 
a lot of the other people said, well, no, you can't think that way because this is even worse because what she's doing, she's coming along and she's making it very difficult now for genuine victims to come forward because they're going to think, well, this investigator, you know, got her, um, you know, uh, she was put through the hoops and and she was, and um, Rolf Harris was found not guilty. So I'm not going to go along. But of course, what they forget is that she <coughs> wasn't telling the truth and she was caught out. So that's one example. I mean, there's a lot more to the story than that, but I think that's enough for what you need. Yeah, that, that, that answers my question quite c c conclusively with that individual. We have just got a few great questions from the, the comment section, actually. So I'll just put a couple of those to you now. Um, Jake Forder has asked, what methods do you use? Uh, I'm just guessing this is in your, your work as a private investigator. What methods do you use and what do you have access to? Right. No, good question. And I, there's the one thing that I always tell all my clients, I never break the law. So you're wasting your time if you want me to break the law. That's why I call myself a specialist investigator, because I don't want to be a private investigator. We've had private investigators who have tapped phones and done all sorts of things. We've seen it. I've never tapped a phone in my life. I've never, ever got um, information from a, a friendly policeman. You don't need to do this. There is so much information out there if you know where to look. And when I was um, first left the police and I started off as an investigator, like a lot of policemen, I had a, a set way of investigating. All policemen do. I had to then develop a whole new way of investigating because I couldn't use what I had as a policeman. Um, and I can give lots of examples. One of the examples I can give is that uh, and it's, it's it's a long way around, but we wanted to, when we were at Lee Park with the uh, Wendy Rocha case, um, we wanted to see if we can find anyone who was around in 1969. So what did we do? We got out, we drew a big circle around Lee Park Community Centre. We were There were apparently over 200 children there, all getting autographs. Big circle. We then went and went through the electoral rolls on every single street. And then we checked them again with the electoral rolls now to see who was still around. There's quite a lot of people still living there. And then we went and started knocking on doors. And that's how we found people who were able to tell us that Rolf Harris was never there. The police, they dropped some pamphlets around. No one answered them except an old eccentric who was in a care home. Uh, and um, when I asked people, we asked people, did they get the pamphlets? A lot of them said we didn't, but they said even if we did, we wouldn't have replied to it because this was a big estate. Uh, and as local policemen that are now retired said, there were no-go areas. Um, you know, they didn't respond to the police. They sorted the problems out themselves. So I had to adopt a completely different way of investigating that was a long, hard slog. Another one was um, where we had another woman who's, who's come forward, uh, and um, she said that she was at, this is at the Cambridge, the second Cambridge one. She was there on her own, or she had a, a girlfriend, uh, and she's since died. Now, we found video footage to show with other girls and we had to find out who these girls were. So what we did, we went back to the school where she was, looked at the all the old records of girls of her age and then started going and knocking on doors. And bingo, we found two of her close friends, found out that they were the ones that were with her, found out the reason she did not want them uh, to, to disclose to the court who they were was because they had a different story to her. Right. And that was hard work. I did a lot of that, knocking on doors at Cambridgeshire. Uh, I finally found a woman down in Seven Oaks, a lovely woman, and she ended up as a witness. But she was a personal friend, uh, had been a school friend, and uh, had been in contact with, um, with this woman. And uh, I knocked on her door, and I had this photograph in my hand. And she said, what are you doing with an old photograph of mine? And I just think I've found the person I'm looking for. And she was actually a, a patent attorney 
Um, and she didn't want to come to court. Of course she didn't. But we summoned her. She came to court. She gave the evidence. And I knew But this, the, the, the woman concerned knew that her friends were decent people and they would not lie. So she didn't want them giving that evidence. And they gave that evidence. And the evidence contradicted what she'd said. Okay. So hopefully that gives you a bit of an idea of how we do it. A, a lot more um, social media, of course, is very big. Uh, depending on the type of person you're dealing with, um, some of them are just rife on social media. and you, They can virtually tell you what they had for dinner yesterday and last year. It's just unbelievable. Uh, others aren't. So you've got to adopt different practices, but none that are legal. And there's another reason for not doing illegal. Because you can't use it in court anyway. Yeah. No, that makes sense. <laughs> What's the point? <laughs> it makes this makes a lot of sense. I mean, it, it sounds like a very similar uh, kind of role to an investigative journalist, perhaps on, on yeah. that scale as, as, as well. Obviously, but obviously your police training and background would, would certainly be an asset uh, when investigating things like this. Another great question from someone named Tiny Evil Greenwich. Interesting question. Did Mr. Mary face censorship and or threats from the Kiwi government regarding his investigations since New Zealand is notoriously against transparency and free speech? Tiny Evil Green, which got some issues with New Zealand there by the sounds of it. It's interesting. Uh, I'm not aware of that. Um, no, I've certainly. In fact, I gave a uh, podcast to a uh, uh, an XZB um, host, uh, Leighton Smith, uh, and it was about 50 minutes uh, when I was in New Zealand. Um, when was that? Last year, October. Uh, and that's still up on the podcast, but no, I didn't receive any threats at all. I'm, I think this may be somehow related to Jacinda Ardern's comments during lockdown, maybe. I think that's the perception a lot of people have about freedom of expression. Uh, in New Zealand, perhaps. Um, okay, so just to hark back to this idea of people, you know, uh, exploiting this big, high-profile case for financial gain, which I, I accept does happen. I mean, just to kind of play devil's advocate a little bit, we did have somebody on the show last week who claimed, uh, made a claim that Rolf Harris sexually assaulted her when she was in her early twenties. He actually assisted in, in the trial. And the difference there with her, I feel, is that she actually told everybody at the time, anyone who would listen, she happily and openly declared what had happened. And, and she, her argument was in the climate at the time. Nobody really did anything. You know, women weren't particularly listened to at the time. However, after uh, Rolf Harris was charged and it became, you know, news, she went to the authorities to, you know, to tell her the story to kind of uh, contribute to the, the case. And the investigators corroborated the fact that she'd actually shared her story at the time with various other people. And it seems to me there wasn't a lot of financial or, or public gain from this woman coming forward years later. And obviously it was corroborated with people who she confided in at the time and told what happened. How do you explain them kind of things? It seems to me like the truth about Rolf Harris is somewhere around... You know, he did wrong things. He was guilty of sexual assault, but perhaps not to the extent that the tabloids have made it out to be. Well, without knowing who it is and what the um, uh, her allegations are, it's difficult to comment. But once again, remember, I'm an investigator. Uh, I don't speculate. Uh, if I'm asked to investigate something, as I did, I'll investigate it. If someone comes through with a story and, and I'm asked to investigate it, I will. Uh, I've heard of um, makeup artists. Um, this, yes, this is forward. Susie Dent. Uh, she is yeah, a she's, written, she's written a book here. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of questions that I would... Uh, again, I've, I've heard the woman. I've actually listened to her talking. Uh, and my, my answer to her is this. Yes, there was a lot going on in dressing rooms. I think they flew a man all the way from Australia over to say Rolf Harris... Uh, had um, gone like this you know, to a woman who was going to do makeup, and um, uh, he said, and then he said that uh, he did nothing about it, no one else did. But he added that there were a lot of shenanigans going on in makeup rooms. So it looks like there were thousands of them. It was happening all the time. Now, as far as Susie Dent goes, I've never been asked to investigate her story, I've never looked at it. Um, I do know that Rolf was um, 
very tactile. In fact, he was overly tactile. But there's a big difference between overly tactile and shenanigans and actually committing a, a serious sexual assault. Now, I don't think the police took her complaint, did they? I think she, or she didn't lay a complaint. But without laying a complaint, of course, we wouldn't have investigated it. And I didn't. So to speculate, uh, I'd be a hypocrite. I, I don't know. Um, but what I do know is that, uh, yes, I'd be the first to say, I mean, I, anyone that knew me when I came over here, I was just a joke to a lot of women. Uh, I was a New Zealander and you didn't hug a woman when you meet her. You didn't, certainly didn't hug a man. And you did that in New Zealand in my days and they would have dropped you, you know, a boyfriend <laughs> or she would have. You just didn't do that. And, but, um, and when I came over here, some women that knew me, uh, and uh, particularly when I was going out with my wife over here, um, they'd do it deliberately, come up just to see me reel back. because it. Uh, uh, and even to this day, I feel uncomfortable. Rolf Harris, Dave Lee Travis, and a few of the others, they were very tactile. They wouldn't hesitate. They'd go up. Rolf was encouraged by most of the women you know, we've had concerts where I've seen them with the old T-shirt, you know, cover me in chocolate and feed me to Rolf Harris and Rolf, I love you and I want your baby. And they'd go up and he hugged them and they'd get all carried away. Yes, what he didn't realise, and this is where not Rolf was, it. not a woman want that. They don't like it. And, of course, um, all I can say is some of the, if she, I think she said that she was there for six or seven hours. Well, why did she stay there for six or seven hours? And Rolf always had managers with him. I know his brother, Bruce, would have been with him. And Bruce wouldn't have tolerated that. Definitely not. Um, Can I just start to pick up on, uh, a, yeah. on a couple of threads there? Because obviously I, I appreciate the fact that you're not Please. you're not familiar with Susie's uh, you know, case particularly, so you're not entirely comfortable commenting on that. I think that's fine. But in terms of like uh, shenanigans back in yesteryear and yeah. kind of you know, bat it and go, bat it, batting it away is something that just went on. I think I saw the, a lot of people would say, well, since kind of the post to the post Me Too revolution, rather, it, that's kind of a reckoning of bringing them things to the light, things that what weren't really acceptable then, but women weren't allowed a voice. They they wouldn't be believed. And the idea, I suppose, in their minds is that now this is coming to the forefront and people are more willing to believe them. They feel more comfortable being honest about their experiences because at the time they feel they would be marginalized or sidelined or have their careers threatened were they to speak up i mean it seems to me on the balance of probabilities like the, the idea that a very pop you know very popular famous man who's kind of used to female attention might take advantage of that doesn't seem entirely far-fetched to me uh, that somebody like that would overstep the mark on on several occasions uh, compared to a, a bunch of you know women all, all making up accounts against him it depends what you call overstepping the mark and and i did have one that i looked at uh, and she said that he was dancing with her, put a hand on her, I call it her bottom, but she calls it something a bit more vulgar. And um, and then he slipped his hand down uh, a little bit further. When we looked at it, yes, possibly he did. But was that a sexual assault? Um, was that any different than what you'd see on any dance floor? And yet they say attitudes have changed. I don't see many changes in attitudes. You've got to go to nightclubs. I mean, my daughter... She was in a nightclub in London, and some of the stories that she brought back to me. Um, I coached rugby over here professionally, uh, or semi-professionally, and I can well remember, this we're only talking a few years ago, I can remember um, my rugby captain going up behind the female physiotherapist uh, after getting changed, and make, with no clothes on, and making gestures as if he was having sex with her. This is in a rugby changing room, and I could not believe it. And I took him aside, and I said, come on, you know, what's this? Everyone else was laughing. She just turned around, and she said, behave yourself, and went on with things. Um, other women that I know from that period, they said, look, we just, we all, I, I very rarely find someone from the 60s, 70s and uh, in particular who can't, um, who can can relate to something like that happening to them and they just say just sorted it out you know 
In my mother's day, they slapped their face. <laughs> yeah, you yeah. The old... yeah. Oh, do you, do you yeah. not appreciate? Do you not appreciate? Perhaps there's a power dynamic that really plays into this with you know male and female relationships. And uh, some of these, uh, obviously, these things that you're talking about fall into the category of faux pas uh, and being overly touchy feeling and tactile. Sure, this, that's a grey area. But some of the accusations levelled at Rolf Harris, particularly from the guest I spoke to last week, include you know full on groping up up short and, and things like that, which is completely appropriate, inappropriate rather on on any level. And obviously, there's a power dynamic there where it can be very difficult for a woman, especially in a, in a period of time, to say stop that or report you, stop that or I'll get you in trouble. I think what the, the me what they would argue is this Me Too movement has allowed them this right to stand up and say that's enough kind of thing. Do you not think that the power dynamic plays a massive part in this? I have no problem with that. I mean, I've got daughters, um, mm. uh, a number of them, and granddaughters, and um, God help anyone that did it to them. I, I, you know, I, I'm very anti that. But what I do say is that a lot of these women that came forward, um, does that make Rolf a paedophile? Because they weren't underage. They were old enough to speak for themselves. Why are they getting, why are they picking on Rolf Harris? Because it was happening to so many more. Should it have happened? No, it shouldn't. Do a lot of, did a lot of women appreciate the, um, Attention. Don't, yes. don't the accusations against Ralph Harris include minors, though? Ah, yes, and we investigated those, and they're the ones that I'm, I'm talking about, the ones that we investigate. They're not the people that are coming forward and saying, well, look, he did this, you know, he, he, he was over, over um, uh, um, touchy with me. I'm talking about now, when it looked at the, the, the minors, um, yes, we did investigate. Now, the first trial... Um, as I said, the Wendy Rosher one, which was the bad one, that was found beyond any doubt whatsoever that she made that story up, fabricated it. And the sad thing about it, that set the scene for the rest of the trial because um, the, there is such a, a rule called the cross-admissibility rule. And the cross-admissibility rule means that if there are more than one, more than one person on an indictment, in this case there were four women, if you believe the first woman is telling the truth and Rolf Harrison isn't, then you're entitled to take that same belief when you consider it's their word against his, particularly when there's no evidence. And, and in the Rolf Harris first trial, Wendy Rosher was the first one up. They put her up. And um, that was absolutely no doubt that, that, that she, she lied. The Court of Appeal um, quashed the conviction later on. Uh, but the problem was the judge, when he was talking to the jury, he said, if you believe the seven-year-old uh, is telling the truth, and this is his actual words, and I have no doubt that she is telling the truth. This is what he's telling the jury, for goodness sake. And throughout the trial, he reminded the jury 57 times of the cross uh, about the cross admissibility rule 57 times now is that fair um and this is the problem she was uh, and the, he was proved to be wrong everyone was proved to be wrong she was a brilliant liar but she'd been like that all her life and we proved beyond any doubt whatsoever that rolf harris was never at this um, lee park community center and that she was never there. And the concert that she said happened never happened. They never had a concert there. When you say so, proved, though, do you mean, I mean, was this proved in court? I mean, not, it doesn't seem to me that many of these were overturned in the end. Yes, um, this was uh, when we went to the Court of Appeal. Remember, I wasn't around when the, he first was convicted. I came along a year later. Right. But, we, but then the police made one mistake, or the prosecution one made one made, made one mistake. What they decided to do in the second and uh, second trials, when the seven more came forward, plus one um, came forward with a um, uh, she didn't have they, it wasn't a criminal case. Um, uh, they actually used the Wendy Rocha case as bad character to try and say, look, this is what he did because she was only seven going on eight. By that time, we'd finished our investigations for the appeal. 
So all that evidence was then presented. And of course, it, bad character backfired on them. And then we took it on to the Court of Appeal and the Court of Appeal quashed the conviction. Um, but that, that was horrific. I mean, that was terrible uh, that that actually happened. And I, I did read something recently uh, where someone, a um, fairly learned person, said that uh, this is just after Rolf had died. If there had been a different judge and a different jury at the first trial, we would have been mourning a national treasure. Because remember, he was found not guilty on all the other charges. It's just that first trial uh, that he went to. Now, I am going to write a second book. I haven't had time yet. We didn't get to investigate the other three um, women who made the complaint, and he was found. He's still got the convictions for those. But I virtually had finished 95% of the investigation. I did it at my own cost, my own time. I now have all the evidence. So that's why I can speak confidently on saying that I believe he was not guilty. He should never have been charged. That's a huge claim that will, will shock a lot of people, especially in the UK. I mean, just to follow that thread in, in regards to the first case. Uh, I'm getting through those threats, aren't I? <laughs> yeah. Uh, Look how Birkham said. Yeah. Uh, Carol Donaldson has asked, uh, what about the friends of Harris's daughter who accused uh, her father? Well, where do I start there? Um, that is, again, if I wrote a second book, it'll be there. But um, uh, there is no evidence. And I mean, there was never any evidence at all that Rolf groomed her from the age of 13. Definitely had an affair with her, no doubt whatsoever. She was 19, I think, at the time. And it lasted for about 10 years. And when you call it an affair, I think they only met eight times. And it wasn't what you call full-on sexual affair but there's a big long story for that and we haven't got time on this program but what I can tell you is that a lot of what she said in court we've now shown was incorrect and one of the problems you have with a, a, a trials like this and this is where the justice system is very uneven they can throw whatever they like at Rolf Harris they can say well look he was a bad man uh, he, he 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 had an affair and he was married to his wife, so he cheated on his wife. Twice he did. Um, but you can't say anything bad about the, the um, complainant, the woman that's come forward. But if we start looking at her, and we have, and in the book we'll be able to write it, um, different story, totally different story. Uh, and the reason why she... Um, uh, why she said started having an affair with Rolf. Uh, that was all to do with his daughter, Bindi. That's why she started having the affair with Rolf. Um, uh, I've got... Bindi was never really listened to. They said, oh, she's just saying it. Bindi was disgusted with her father. And there's this letter that he wrote. But I do note that when they had this program um, on hiding in plain sight, they did fall short and they did at least correct one thing. Never once in that letter that he wrote did he admit to her being underage. What he did say, that he was disgusted in himself. And he was disgusted himself. Why? Because it was a friend of his daughter and they were neighbours. <coughs> and they trusted him. And he should never have allowed himself to get into that situation. But he did. A lot of people, though, would point to Bindi Harris's daughter as kind of like a telling example, really. The fact that she's, you know, she's changed the name, she's cut ties with him, she cut ties with him completely when he was alive, if I'm not mistaken. I mean, doesn't that really reflect badly on Rolf Harris that his own daughter wouldn't stand in solidarity with him? I don't know where you get that she she cut ties with him. No, she was there right up when he was ill. Bindi was visiting regularly along with her husband. She never cut ties. I, I had more contact with Bindi than I did with Rolf. I thought she um, changed her name as a way of disassociating. Of course missing. she changed her name, yeah. I mean, Bindi is, how can I describe, Bindi's part of a mother and a father. I mean, one of the nicest people you'd ever want to meet. Um, she can't take she can't take all this bad publicity against her father and herself. Um, you know, there are some people that can do it. Rolf Harris struggled, but she never, ever cut her ties with her father. Never. Um, 
that that's wrong. But changing the name, of course you did. I mean, as you said, I might have to change my name after tonight. <laughs> well, I mean, just just to look, look at that, I mean, just to be cynical about it, obviously we pointed to the fact that people will be motivated by money and attention when they see an opportunity. A lot of people who are really, you know, in the camp of believing the, the official stories about Ralph Harris will, will look at you and say perhaps he's capitalising in a way, he's been paid to do damage control for Rolf Harris. He's, you know, he's got a book in his name. He's got somewhat of a public profile now because of this. How would you respond to those kind of accusations where people would say, perhaps you're just an opportunist? No problem at all. Um, the amount of money that I got paid for Rolf Harris, I charged at an hourly rate and the men that work for me charged at an hourly rate. I got no bonuses. I got nothing. If I wasn't working for Rolf Harris, I would have been working for one of the other people, and I was during that time. So all I did was charge an hourly rate. As far as the public profile go, I do not like public profile. You ask my wife, and I've come on this program, and I'm doing it because of the book. I'm happy. I don't, I'm not like a certain other investigator out there that wants to be in the limelight the whole time. I don't want to be in the limelight. Um, I don't need to do anything. Goodness gracious, Sunday week ago, I was 75. What do I want to start <laughs> promoting anything? <laughs> you know? And as far as the book goes, yes, it would be nice to sell a few books. i tell you why, and I'd make no joke about it. It cost me over £8,500 for legal costs to get for liability solicitor who had to read it twice. Harris has paid nothing towards it, um, absolutely nothing. I was over halfway through the book before I even told them I was writing it. And I think I calculated that it's cost me well over 20, 25,000 pounds to write that book. And so far, uh, I might have got 10, 20% back. Okay. So that it owes me a lot of money. And that's why I haven't written the second book. A lot of people say, write the second book. I said, you get me a publisher who's prepared to put some money up and I'll write the second book. Mm. But I said, I, I, I've got to live. Um, and I, you know, that's why I still, I'm still working. I said, the book didn't make me any money at all. Do, but do you, I had, sorry. So I was going to say, do you worry? Because, I mean, just speaking to you in the brief 40 minutes or so we've known each other, I, I get the impression, you you know, you're fairly diligent and you're, you're in this to find out what is true. And whether or not you're right or not, really, uh, I can't verify. I'm not, I don't know all the details. You know much more than me. But there might be a perception from people who who haven't really listened to you, haven't read the book, who just look at this on a surface level and, and see perhaps somebody doing damage control for somebody who's sexually assaulted minors. I mean, does that does that perception worry you a little bit? Because you could choose practically any other crime on the planet to cover and do this work for, and it wouldn't have such a you know a kind of potent uh, public reaction given how serious this kind of crime is in the minds of people. Look. I agree with you wholeheartedly. I, if I could have got something else, um, and I have got other things I could write about, um, I've got something that is really, really good, uh, and that's um, the manipulation of DNA. And I want to write the book on that one because that was an interesting case, but that's got a fairy tale ending. Um, these haven't got fairy tale end endings. But I didn't go look for this. I fell into it. It fell into me. And how it all started was my wife, who was in the music industry. She ran her own PR company, and um, uh, she was in a band when she was younger. And she came from the music industry. And when DLT, um, I met her in 2006. When DLT was charged, she said to me, oh, I used to work for him. I said, oh, well, who, who, who was he? I didn't know anything about him. And she told me, she said, I was two and a half years, I was his PA back in the 70s. And I said, oh, I said, well, don't you think that you should contact him and act as a character witness? I said, you had two and a half years. And if you saw my wife, you know, she's she was an ex-model, very attractive, blonde, tall. Um, and um, she, um, uh, even though she's my age now, but that doesn't matter. But I, you know, she was the sort of woman that of course he would be. I've seen photographs of her young. So she said, oh, do you think I should? I said, yes. She hadn't spoken to him for 30, 40 years. So she contacted him. He came round. They spent an hour and a half here. And I said, well, what are you doing about it? 
which I don't know what to do. So I'm, I've only, I'm coming, this is in October, uh, in the October. He said, it's coming up for trial in February. I said, I think you better do something. So he said, what do you suggest? So I started going through a few options and he said, right. He had, he was facing um, 14 charges, 14 different people. And away I went. Um, I did it originally to help him. Now, did I make any money out of that? No. Um, I just did it. Uh, I got paid some money. Of course I did. But I didn't make anything like solicitors were making. So I'm writing this book simply because I wanted to show how one-eyed the investigations were and how these people did not get a fair trial. If they... I think out of everyone that I've been involved in, I can't remember how many charges now, there must be, that I investigated, there must be 100, 120. I think there's probably only been about two or three that they've been found guilty on. All the rest, not guilty, that I've been involved in. Now, compared to our friend, Mr. Pankhurst, who was involved with the Operation U Tree and Ben Markham, I'd hate to have their record because they'd be lucky to, to have had 10% convictions. Why? Because they did the investigation, a biased, one-eyed investigation. They listened to their own publicity, and the press led the investigations. With me, the press didn't, because the press weren't interested in a defence for Rolf Harris or Dave Lee Travis. <coughs> How does the... Um, I mean, I'm aware of the media circus surrounding this. It's got everything the British tabloid... Yeah seems to care about you know we've got celebrity we've got child abuse then the, the venn diagram of that is is massive news for the front page for some reason uh, uh but how does that influence the court proceedings as such i mean we have very strict uh, reporting rules on, on live uh criminal proceedings in this country obviously we have contempt of court things like that how, how could the press influence what went on in the courtroom well the trouble is um they say to the jury the judge always says to the jury you must not listen to anything you must not read anything He's not on the same planet. Of course, they're going to listen. You know, when I was a when I was a young detective in New Zealand, when there was a trial on, the jury didn't go home; they stayed in the hotel for that very reason. But these jurors are going home every night, and they're going to be they're around their friends and their everyone over the weekend. You're telling me that they're not going to say anything; they're not going to read anything; they're going to not going to be. Um, uh, influenced by anything they hear on the television? Of course they are. Um, and in the case of Rolf Harris, uh, you probably don't know this if you haven't read the book, uh, and I mean that in the nicest way. In the case of Rolf Harris, it was even worse because in the first trial, there was a serving metropolitan policeman on the jury. Now, you wouldn't do that in New Zealand or Australia, uh, uh, but there he was on the jury, and he didn't tell the judge and it wasn't until the trial was well underway that the foreman, I think, or, or no, not the foreman, someone came forward and said to the judge, oh, there's a serving metropolitan policeman on the jury. And he was allowed to stay on it. What would be the conflict of interest there, then, if you just explain it to somebody who's, who can't quite well, figure it out on their own? The conflict of interest, of course, is pretty obvious. You've got a man who knows the court system. Uh, he's from the same police force who is prosecuting, uh, there are 11 others on the jury, and you can almost guarantee that they've never been in a courtroom in their life. They know very little about the judicial system. So obviously, he's going to be able to influence them quite a bit into his way of thinking. Now, again, when I was a policeman... But, I mean, isn't that the, the job yeah. of anyone on, on the jury if you've got to come to a unanimous decision, influencing people? Well, they're allowed to talk to each other. They discuss the, the evidence and the facts. Um, and look, when I was a policeman, dog don't eat dog. <laughs> it's as simple as that. I, I can mean, tell you right now. It must be no, legal, I, obviously, because like you say, it was revealed that he was a serving Met police officer and he was allowed to stay on. So, I mean, it seems like it, it, it is within the rules. It is within the rules, um, but the rules also state that he should have said that at the start, which would have given the defence time to look into it and object more. I've actually read the decision 
as to why he shouldn't have been on there. Not that, yeah, read, uh, and it virtually says that he should be excused from jury duty. But then at the last minute, and I still can't work this out, neither can anyone else that's read it, the judge turned around and said, oh, no, he can stay. Um, but, you know, there's for and against it. I heard one, um, a lot of uh, lawyers say, look, it, it, it shouldn't be. But I did have one lawyer who said, well, it actually worked to my advantage because on one case, because I was able to get through to him, whereas the others didn't seem to understand what's going on. So this can happen. But, you know, it was stacked against him. And, and when the first complainant, uh, who, by the way, just, um, I think an Australian um, commentator, uh, I saw on the TV the other day um, talking about Rolf's death. She's still calling the seven or eight-year-old a victim, the youngest victim being seven. Well, she's not a victim. She she was never. She once the court of appeal overturned that she was never a victim. Um, but of course, when you've got that uh, that situation, um, uh, you've got to um, uh, bear in mind uh, that she had an amazing influence, and she was a magnificent liar. Uh, and she got to the judge. And she got to the jury, and they were all convinced. Although, quite honestly, I don't think the police detectives handling the case were that convinced. But they didn't do the job because there was a comment made off the record uh, to the Harrises um, that they didn't think that he would be found guilty on that one. And they almost didn't lay the charge, but they decided to throw it in because they thought, oh, well, what? You know, because she was such a good liar. But there was no evidence to back up what she was saying. I, I mean, I, so I, in your mind, would you would you say that Rolf Harris is completely... I mean, how many accusations went against him? And and, and do you think all of those accusations are, were turned out to be false in the end? The accusations in the first trial... Um, the convictions still stand. Uh, I've, as I said, I've investigated them and I'm now satisfied that um, on with the evidence that I've found that there was a motive for all of them and that he was not guilty. Was he, and all the others, of course, he was found not guilty. As far as um, being over tactile, and being what I would call a bit, a bit foolish, a bit silly, going a little bit too far, yes, I can I can see that. But that wasn't my job. My job was to investigate the complaints. Did he commit sexual assault on these women? And the answer was he didn't. But was he over tactile? Was he naive in thinking that he can hug women and squeeze them and they will all love it? That was silly. I would never do that, and I don't think you would do it. And most, but there's a lots of people out there that are still doing it. I, I, I still see it every now and then. Someone comes up and they, a great. And the first time I saw DLT, he came up to my wife and he gave her a huge great hug, and I thought, my God, unbelievable! You've been charged with these offences, and you're still giving her this great big hug, and you know, rubbing her up the back and that sort of thing. I thought, I just shook my head. But this is. This is what they were like. And as I said, the majority of women loved that attention. But there were others that didn't. And that's where the problem was. All right, William. Well, it's been a pleasure to speak to you. It's not exactly what I thought this conversation would be. I mean, I'm intrigued. <laughs> uh, You've made a lot of sense. And it feels to me that, you know, regardless of who's right or wrong on this, you are coming from it from the angle of trying to get to the truth, which I, I really appreciate. So I will definitely take time to, to catch up and, and read your book. Uh, and congratulations on, on just turning 75. You mentioned, was it last week? <laughs> Don't make a big deal about it. <laughs> yeah, we're just gonna, gonna, yeah talk, should have talked about that for an hour. But uh, maybe you could point uh, everyone to where they can find out more information about your, your work and writing. I thought you were going to say you could point them to how they can still be um, talking on air and be 75. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's it's on um, um, 
you've got goodness i've just lost it um I think we've put some links in the the notes uh, actually, so people can find your book on Amazon. Amazon, as well. Amazon. I'm, yeah. I lost. I'm sorry, I lost it. I was so busy thinking about the. It's it's on Amazon. Um, I think there are other places, and I know you can order it through bookshops because I ordered uh, one for a friend through um, W H Smith, and they uh, they got it for him. Uh, but it's primarily on Amazon, and uh, it, it, it's quite easy. You, I don't know if you've shown the book at all on the program it's in the uh show notes below and in the comment section so people can see oh, the link as this conversation's yeah, gone on so people it there it is there, <laughs> there's, his, there's his face which now strikes fear there's in a the story heart. behind that painting as well the girl that painted the girl we'll that that another, another time unfortunately we have just run out of time with you but i can, Sorry. I can definitely yep. speak for all, all evening but i i appreciate your time and, and thank you very much for speaking to us lovely to meet you bye take care